AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Welcome to Ruthie's Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. Today we're here at the Cannes Lion Festival and have swapped the River Cafe kitchen for a galley on the most beautiful boat in the harbor, which, I'm happy to say, is safely tied up. Bob Pittman is a captain, sort of, as he is of so many great things. He created MTV, which changed the way we listen to music, and most recently, iHeartMedia, which changed the way we listen to everything else. Bob believes in stories. He's often said that everyone has one great story to tell. The first time we met, he told me some about growing up in Mississippi, the food his family cooked, and from an early age, his almost illegal passion for being a pilot. He spoke movingly and proudly about his father's brave commitment as an anti-segregationist. In our short and recent friendship, I've learned from many about his generosity, his faith in new talent, and guess what else? His rigorous passion for producing Casa Dragones tequila, definitely my favorite. In the two years I've known him, I've heard nothing but admiration and love from everyone I've spoken to. I understand why. So you made this lemon ice cream, and I wonder whether you'd like to read the recipe. Of course I'd like to read the recipe. I like it because the headline says Bob Pittman Lemon Ice Cream. Oh, so it's like the only it. time I've ever had my <laughs> name associated with, it, with food. I, I like that. So okay. the ingredients are finely grated zest of one and juice of three lemons. Makes sense. A cup of sugar, a half teaspoon of sea salt, Two cups of double cream. It serves six. And you put it in a, in a bowl, mix in the lemon zest and, and juice, sugar and salt with a spoon. Slowly, I'm sure slowly is important, add the cream, carefully mixing with a spoon, uh, and it will immediately thicken. You then put, this is really simple stuff. This is absolutely my kind of recipe. Mm. You then put the ice cream mixture in the freezer and freeze it for two hours. It hardens up, and then you have magic. Try it. Okay. So the thing about this ice cream is that you don't have to churn it. No. By the way, as a kid, mm. growing up in Mississippi, my grandmother had a churn and would make ice cream. Did she? And I loved the ice cream. I hated churning it. This was before the days of electric stuff. This is you turn it and turn it. When it got really hard, I'd call my older brother over. You turn it some. Mm. And, uh, and then we'd sort of put it away and... We'd have the the ice cream. So, so tell me about the churner. So what it had the ice in the. What it was, was like, it like a wooden tub, and it had a ice in it. And you put this metal container down that would hook onto the crank on top. Hmm. Put kosher salt all over it, big hmm. salt. Just cover it on the ice with that, and you churn and churn and churn until it hardened up. Hmm. And that was your grandmother. That was my grandmother. Did your mother then discover that you could actually put a plug in and well, turn an electric? Well, this was more the days of that, this? and we were probably too poor to buy one, even if there was one for sale. Yeah. Uh, but it was perfect with my grandmother, who, by the way, at the same time was making 
crab gumbo mm. that we've been catching the crabs all day. She was from New Orleans and had this spectacular gumbo recipe. Start cooking about nine. We'd throw the crabs in about five. The ice cream would be ready about then. She'd put the towel over it, take the thing off, pack it with ice while we ate the gumbo, and then we could have the ice cream for dessert. This is just because a lot of people I talk to really talk about their grandmothers as much as their mothers. So you started out by talking about your grandmother. So why don't we go back to that, about growing up with your grandmother cooking for you? She lived in your house? No, no. We just visited my grandmother often. They had a little house on a little bay in Mississippi called Bay St. Louis. Mm -hmm. We called it the camp. And we'd go visit them at the camp. And when we went there, my grandmother was a proper Cajun cook, and we had all that fabulous Southern and Cajun stuff. My mother was from northern Mississippi originally, a farm girl. So hers was more hearty, like, you know, Crowder peas, butter beans. What's Crowder peas? Crowder pea is sort of like a black eye pea, mm-hmm. a little firmer and sort of dark all over as opposed to one speck of darkness. Mm-hmm. And my brother and I, every time my mother would go visit her family and come back home, she'd bring with her bushels of peas and butter beans, and my brother and I hated it because we had to shell them shell all them. so that she could then freeze them for the winter. Oh. Uh, that's, you know, as a kid, you don't want to sit around doing that stuff. So we're talking distance of how many miles between northern and southern? Southern Mississippi, I'm sure probably five-hour drive. Yeah, and yet the cooking was so different. Very different. Yeah. Very different. By the, when you were down near Louisiana, it was very spicy. Mm. Uh, when you're in the middle of Mississippi and up north, it's very bland. By mm. the time you get to the top of the state, and by the way, all through the state, there's barbecue which has a red sauce, but is very sweet. Um, Mm. And you just sort of slow cook the stuff on steamers, and so it just sort of melts. And uh, and then you slather that stuff on until it really turns to candy. Put it in that smoker and just let it go and go. And it was, yeah, uh, up north. But on the south, it was more fried food. We'd gig for flounders. You'd go out with a white lantern, and you'd look for them in the water, and you'd gig them, and then you'd pull them up. And the flounder's like a... It's a stick with a nail on the end of it that yeah. you stick them so you can get them and you pick them up from that. They sort of burrow into the sand, but they're a flat fish like a, like a sole. So we do that. But my, my, again, my parents and my grandmother, you put them in cornmeal. By the way, everything's put in cornmeal. Mm. And you throw in the deep fryer and uh, you have this spectacular fried fish. Everything's fried. I had an uncle who said, I like ham any way you fix it, as long as you fry it last. <laughs> uh, so I think that was a, uh, a great indication of Southern cooking. And do you think that black culture also contributed to this? I know that there's something going on right now about the black community feeling that a lot of the Cajun cooking or the cooking of the South emits their culture. Do you think that or do you feel Well, I think the Southern cooking and the black culture were completely intertwined. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was sort of all of one. And um, I spent time in Chicago and I loved the South side of Chicago. Soul cooking Mm. is Mm. the cooking I I grew up with Mm. and always share that affection for my other favorite is fried okra, where you cut the okra up, have a cast iron skillet, get the really hot, yeah. Roll it around in some cornmeal and throw it in there. And by the time it comes out, it's crispy like a popcorn. You said something about being too poor to afford a churner, perhaps, for the ice cream. Tell me about life in the Pittman household when well, you were growing Well, I, I grew up. up. I didn't know we were poor. My dad was very well educated. He had his undergrad from University of Southern Mississippi, had graduate school at Emory in Atlanta. My mother was a college graduate, which is also unusual for two parents at that that era. And the family really valued smarts. 
My dad was a Methodist minister, so the church gave us a house and gave us a very nice house. So we had a nice house, as if we had a lot of money, and uh, they would let you. They would let the ministers join the country club. So even though they had no money, they didn't have to pay. But we could go to the country club as if we had money, and so we had a decent lifestyle, but little money. And uh, but you know, in those days, you didn't miss it and you didn't know, and all that wasn't flaunted on TV. And what was it? What was my household? Yeah. So my household. How many are you? I have one brother, and I had a a magical upbringing that I didn't realize how magical it was till I became an adult. I never in my life saw my parents fight. My parents would have disagreements, but they go, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, I don't know. Why do you think that? And they would go through nice. it. In our household, you couldn't say hate. We never hated anybody. We didn't hate anything. So that was sort of the dirty word of the house. And when my mom passed away, one of my cousins said, you know, the worst thing I ever heard your mother say about somebody was, I wonder why they want to be that way. <laughs> so that was her way of saying that's yeah. not her favorite person. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But everything was met with sort of an understanding and a gentility, which I truly appreciate. My brother yeah. and I often talk about, we definitely won the parent lottery and, you know, mm. oh, yes, we didn't have money. We didn't have a lot of things, but I'll, I'll trade all that for what we had. Did you and your brother argue? Of course. Oh, we okay. were kids. So, And by the was, way, I wish I could was... say I didn't argue in my household because I don't yeah. have that. I don't know what, I don't know I how my spend. parents managed to, to pull that off. And I mm. think I didn't appreciate it until I became an adult. Mm. This reminds me of when I uh, talked to Valerie Biden, who's President Biden's sister. And she said she was brought up in a household of Irish Catholics in, in Delaware where there was no arguing. You just were not allowed to argue with your brothers or your sisters that in the house it was that you were, you know, you defended each other. And I wonder about that because you, you just see that as so much of our life. Of, I don't know about your children, but disagreement is okay. You know, it is okay to disagree. It's okay to um, take your position. But it's something very beautiful as well about the idea that somehow there was peace and you well, I, in the I house. Well, I also a difference between arguing and personalizing something. Mm. Um, mm. It's one thing to debate it. I believe that. You believe that. And we'll... I don't know why you believe that. Let's figure it out. As opposed to, you're bad, you're an idiot, mm, you don't yeah. care, you're evil. And, you know, if you can avoid personalizing it, yeah. I think you go so far because you can continue the conversation. Mm. Bettelheim said a great thing. I remember as a young parent, he said that you don't ever say to a child, you are something. You say right. you are behaving. So you don't say you are selfish. You say you are behaving in a selfish way, right. you know, and that makes apparently... A selfish you know, act. An act. And, and then, then you usually then say, but I know that's not you. <laughs> There's also... In a hopeful tone to the child. <laughs> this is all what we aspire to. There's a great cartoon in The New Yorker in which a mother says, I'm going to get very angry at you in a very quiet and controlled way, <laughs> which is also maybe not the healthiest. But back to the food. So you said your mother worked? My mother worked as a school teacher for... Some of my childhood, and then was stayed at home mom after that. Mm. And so she would cook Cooked dinner. M- most meals for we you? cooked and ate at home, right? Usually it was a somewhat light meal. It could have been eggs, mm-hmm. piece of meat, piece of fish, some peas, beans, rice, and uh, sort of these wholesome eating. And there would probably could be fried stuff, but we would also eat stuff like squirrel. Did you? Uh, what was squirrel and, like? I've never eaten squirrel. Well, squirrel, I always think it, you know, people say something tastes like chicken. I always think something tastes like squirrel. Squirrel's my reference meat. Is it? Um, I'm kidding, but it is. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. But, it, 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 you know, it's a, it's a much leaner meat. 
hmm. um, than anything you probably get that's domesticated. Uh, but I always liked squirrels. It was like, would you hunt them, or would you yes. go to the yeah, local we go grocery to squirrel. store? No, no, you know, I can buy them at the grocery store. But either I'd hunt them, or somebody would bring some squirrel by because they've been squirrel hunting. Mm. And uh, and occasionally, people bring by dove or quail and eat that as well. Yeah, quail is delicious. And, I've and never deer, had a dove. venison. Yeah, was always somebody would get a deer every winter, and then they'd butcher it, and yeah. everybody'd have some venison for the winter. Yeah, venison sausage. Uh, um, I grew up in upstate New York, and I still have memories of the deer on the front of the car. Do you yes. remember the deer being brought back uh, from the hunting? You know, and then you'd watch Bambi and could never take it. Right. Again, well, you, you get know, the wild but, boars. <laughs> they didn't look so nice. Yeah. Did your parents ever take you to a restaurant? We did, but there were not a lot of great restaurants in mm-hmm. Brookhaven, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Holiday Inn on Sunday was probably the best restaurant in town. Mm-hmm. Um, there were catfish cabins, which were great. So you'd go out there mm-hmm. on the river and, and you'd eat the filet of catfish and, uh, and hush puppies and French fries. And hush that puppies was are? A cornmeal that's mm-hmm. fried. Are they on a stick? No. no. That's corn dog with corn a hot dogs. dog in it. But it's mm-hmm. think of that without the hot dog in it, yeah, uh, yeah, and without the stick, and you're getting pretty close to a hush puppy. So there were things like that. There's sort of specialty places, but there were no. In my day, there was no fine dining, and if there was, my family wouldn't know about it. Yeah, talking about your father and segregation, can you tell me about that? I mean, presumably, when you went to restaurants, they were segregated. Was your school segregated? My, when Did I started you? school in Mississippi. In 1959, it was completely segregated. There were white schools and black schools. Mm-hmm. There were colored-only signs for water fountains and bathrooms, and white-onlys, uh, completely separate. In the 12 years I went to school, everything happened. And by my senior year in high school, my graduating class was about 50-50 white-black. Mm-hmm. So it all happened in my school years. And there were people like my dad who were very supportive of change and working hard for it. There were people who were absolute racist and didn't want it. Mm. And then there was a group of people in between that knew it was the right thing, but they just, they wanted it to come slowly. Mm. I was talking to Jesse Jackson once, and Jesse was saying that the biggest problem they had in the in the civil rights movement were not the racists, because they could sort mm-hmm. of deal with them. Mm. It was the people who wanted to go slow. Yeah. And that's sort of human nature, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So they were not bad people. They weren't terrible people. They just, they were like, didn't want things to change. Yeah. And so I think you had to sort of overcome that inertia. Uh, you didn't necessarily have to convince them not to be racist. You just mm-hmm. had to convince them to go ahead and no. make the changes yeah. and make them more dramatically than you expected them. Yeah. Initially in Mississippi, to break through segregation, they did freedom of choice. So you could choose which school you wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. So we had maybe 10 black kids at our school and maybe 10 white kids at the black school, hardly integrated. And it wasn't until the federal government basically said, look, you're going to have to bus kids or do whatever, but you're going to have to mix the schools based on sort of the racial population mm-hmm. of, the, of the area. And, uh, and that's when the big change came. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're getting into another discussion, but that is the role of the federal government, wasn't it? It was saying, you know, we do change hearts and minds first and then bring in integration or do you say, we're doing this and you're going to have have to change? Yeah. I, I think, you know, and, and by the way, I don't think there was any looking back any other way. Probably mm-hmm. would have been better to do it sooner. You know, I look at all these years. I was on on Instagram with a, one of my uh, friends, one of the people I went to school with who was black. And my senior year, they closed down the black high school merged it with the white high school, turned the black school into the middle school and sort mm-hmm. of moved everything into that building. 
And I was asking, I said, what did, what did it feel like? And he said, mm-hmm. I felt unwelcome. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the interesting feeling about, you know, here are these kids that are forced to go somewhere new into a new situation and not feeling like everybody's going, hey, w- welcome. Let me mm-hmm. show you around. Um, so I think it's, you know, been a struggle from that. But I think uh, there are, you know, many people making great progress and there's mm-hmm. some people still resisting mm-hmm. progress. And while you were growing up in this house and with the food, you also started working, as I said, at, when you told me the other night, at a, at a kind of almost illegal age, I would have thought. It was you were 14 or 15. I was 15. I had actually worked. Even when I was in the fifth grade, I got a job sweeping up a department store in town mm. after the store closed. I'm sure that was illegal. Mm. Uh, but when I was 15, I needed a job to pay for flying lessons. Mm. And the only job I could find... Can in I just this, stop you there? Sure. Flying lessons at age 15? You can solo at 16. So mm. I wanted to get the money when I was 15 so that at 16 I could start my flying career. And I tried to get a job bagging groceries, actually, at the Piggly Wiggly, which was a very good paying job because they tipped you to bring the bags out to the car. And uh, the job size, you imagine, were all full. I tried to get a job at a men's clothing store, which everyone hung out at after mm. school, and I had no jobs. And I walked in this radio station and asked a man named Bill Jones, who owned the radio station, if I could have a job. And he said, do you get in trouble? Not really. You get good grades? Yeah, I get good grades. He goes, come in this room. He took me in a little studio. He had a reel-to-reel tape recorder. He turned it on record. He tore some wire copy off these teletype machines that used to print the news constantly. And he said, read this. I read it. He listened to the tape and goes, that's good enough. Go to New Orleans and get your third-class radio telephone operator's license, which means I could then control the transmitter. And so I went away to New Orleans, got it, and that began my radio career. At age 15? Age 15, making a dollar, I think it was probably a dollar 65 an hour minimum wage. Wow. Do you remember anything to do with food and your your working? Oh, I ate garbage. I mean, I, I was a very skinny kid, so I heard in my ear always, eat you need to eat more. We mm. got to fatten you up. Mm. So I would eat bags of potato chips and mm. candy and everything. So anything I wanted to eat and just had a ravenous appetite for junk. Yeah. And did that last? Well, it lasted until it? I started gaining weight and go, whoa, yeah, wait a minute, maybe that's not a good idea. And when you left home, did you go to university? I went to you? college in Jackson, Mississippi. I was on the radio. I kept getting better and better jobs and I had a job. I worked in the afternoons in Brookhaven. Mm. On Sunday, I drove to Jackson. It was on Sunday morning on the 102.9 Stereo Rock in Jackson where we went. And that was a tasty track from Dr. John the Night Tripper. And before <laughs> that, you heard the doors. And it was, you, you, you imagine. great radio You would imagine you people too. sitting in some, you know, smoke-filled filled, mm. uh, room. And then I got a job on the Top 40 station in town, which was the pop station. Mm. And I did night times there. So I went to college during the day, went there, and I got completely bitten by the radio bug Mm. and decided this is going to be my career. Maybe as simple as because there were request lines ringing all the time. And there were girls on the other end of the request line. I mean, mom, you know, a teenage boy. And they go, hello, I'd like to meet you. And you go, what? You're asking me to meet me? So... I got what very. What year was this? Book? This was 1971, 72. Mm. In 1972, I sent away all these air checks, which are tapes of your radio show, to all mm. these radio stations all over the country trying to get a job. And I got hired in Milwaukee. This 18 year old kid, I've never been north of, mm. you know, Tennessee. Mm. And I remember driving up, I loaded up my car, I drove up, spent the night in St. Louis, and then I drove the rest of the way the next day. And when I saw that Chicago skyline, I went, 
oh my God, mm-hmm. what is that? I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. And uh, I said, one day, one day I'm going to work in Chicago. And I went to Milwaukee and the competitor in Milwaukee had a sister station in Detroit. And they hired me to go to Detroit to do 10 at night till two in the morning. Mm-hmm. At that time, Detroit was the fifth largest city in the country. And I go, oh my God, I'm in absolutely the big time now. They didn't pay me any money, but I'm in the big time. So at age 20, I went to Chicago, NBC in Chicago, and I'm the program director, and I'm doing the afternoon show on the radio station. And I did the FM station there, and then they sent me to New York to WNBC when I was 23. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Those were very heady political times. Late 60s, early 70s. Detroit was burning. Detroit, Detroit was burned on fire in the 60s. In the 60s. I came there not much after that. Um, the country was in turmoil. Nixon resigning, yeah. you know, er- yeah, no more. everything going on. You escaped the draft, did you? I escaped the draft because I have one eye. Oh. So I was 4F. So I was never going in. You have one eye? Yeah, but I lost Which an one? eye as a, a child, my right eye. Lost an eye as a oh. child in a horseback riding accident. So I was not going to be drafted. But I also had a, they had lottery for my age group. And I happened to get a good number for the lottery. So the lottery number was completely wasted on me. Um, so the draft, but the draft was there. Every, and by the way, I still had a draft card because mm. until they get called up and get classified as 4F, you have to have the draft card. But that was going on. And remember, we had the, the oil embargo, mm. so we had to wait days to get our gasoline. And it was just, and inflation went wild, and the economy went terrible in the, through the 70s. In the 70s. So I, uh, I lived through all that. Yeah. I didn't know what I was looking at. By the way, I'd never driven in snow until I got to Detroit, and someone took me to a parking lot one day and taught me how to drive in snow. Mm-hmm. But I learned a lot, but some did you, good and some bad. Going back to the food, when you left this, you know, being cooked for by your mother, being shopped for by your mother, having wild squirrels, and then you were on your own, did you just forget about the food of, that you'd grown up with and grab what you could? And did you have an apartment where you cooked? Did you have a girlfriend who cooked for you? Did you have a domestic life? Because you haven't described any domestic life. I I was completely a fiend for working. And Mm -hmm. I was so ambitious that I wanted to put all my efforts into working. Mm -hmm. I would eat whatever I could. I'd eat stuff out of a can. Um, I I, I felt it was like a college student eating. And, um, and the, but when I went to Milwaukee, back then there were regional foods. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time I ever saw a submarine sandwich. I go, what the hell is that thing? <laughs> so I discovered yeah. submarine sandwiches. I think I ate my first pizza in Detroit. And Did you like it? 
yeah, I liked it. It was yeah. not what I expected. And I probably got to, I went to Pittsburgh and Chicago. I think I was Chicago before I ever ate an artichoke. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember the first time I, was, I ate an artichoke. I was at Harvard at a, at a party and somebody passed around. I, I literally didn't know how to eat it. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, what I didn't is know that, thing? that you took the leaf off. You know, that that was something that was I had, very, I had very... A, a girlfriend introduced me to the artichoke, mm. and she had to explain to me, as if I'm some simpleton, how I would eat it. And I thought, wow, this is so advanced. I yeah. can't wait to go back to Mississippi <laughs> and tell them about an artichoke. Yeah. When you at home, did, was it a big event for your family when you Whenever I home? would come home... Cast iron skillet was out. My mother always made fried okra because she knew it was my favorite. Mm. And we would probably have some fried catfish, which was also mine. And for year, I'm a pilot. And for years, I would stop if I was doing a trip and going anywhere near Memphis. Or mm. I would stop in Memphis. I would have called my cousins before, got one of them to bring me some catfish and some barbecue to the plane and mm. get some fuel there and take off. Uh. And uh, so I eat the rendezvous or Corky's barbecue for years there and the fried catfish fillets. What do you like about flying? I, you know, that's a really good question. I was in the fifth grade in Mississippi. My dad had a friend who had an airplane, two-seater. Mm. And he took me up in that plane. And I remember that sensation of like you're going up an elevator, but you don't come down. You just keep going. And I looked down and the sense of control. And my grandfather worked for a man in Picayune, Mississippi, who had a big lumber mill and plant. My grandfather ran it for him. And he had a a plane. Mm -hmm. And my dad's cousin, my grandfather's nephew, was the uh, pilot for it. Mm. So when I would go to Picayune, my grandfather would let me go out and crawl all over the plane and hang out with these planes. And I was just eating up with airplanes. Mm. No idea why, but it was just something about flying. And over the years, always found that I get in that cockpit and whatever I'm thinking about goes away and I think about flying. And I look down at the ground. I On cross country, I stop at these places to get fuel. I try and stop. I used to try and stop anymore, but used to stop in all these little towns. So I had planes that didn't go very far Mm. uh, before we needed more fuel. And I would often borrow a crew car. And while they're refueling the plane, I'd go into town and go to a restaurant, buy something, Ah, look around. So you would find out what the food of the place you were in. I still remember I went to, stopped in North Carolina once Mm. and went into town, ordered some barbecue, and they brought me out this meat with like vinegar on it. And I go, no, I'm sorry, I ordered barbecue. Mm-hmm. And they go, this is barbecue. Yeah. I go, boy, I don't know what this stuff is, but it's, it's nasty. Was it nasty? Uh, well, it, to me it was. To yeah. them, that was perfect barbecue. Yeah. Uh, Where was it? In North Carolina. North Carolina. And I actually, a friend I met years ago, I met him at a mutual friend introduced us in a barbecue restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we start bantering a little bit. And I go, he's from North Carolina. I go, you know, I don't know what that stuff is you have but that's not barbecue. Mm -hmm. So I threw down the gauntlet. And so he organized a party that summer and invited all of his friends from the South to bring the barbecue from their home state. And it was such a great, and he did it for a couple of years, which Mm -hmm. great fun. And you know, you realize South Carolina has this mustard-based barbecue. Mm -hmm. Texas has barbecue that looks like Mississippi. It's red barbecue nothing sweet about it. Mm. Uh, And then you get up. Is it very chilly? Yeah, very chilly. chilly. And then you get up to Missouri or somewhere like that, and it is barbecue, but it's not pork. It's beef, and everywhere else is is pork barbecue. So what's your favorite? 
Mississippi, of Mississippi. course. Well, is that a trick question? No. Because <laughs> I remember I also talked to Al Gore, and he talked a lot about the barbecue in Tennessee. You know? Actually, at that party, the first party, his daughter came with yeah. her husband, and I was going to get my barbecue from Corky's in Memphis, mm-hmm. and they got Corky's, uh. so I couldn't do that. And so I had to get my cousin, who his partner was one of these barbecuers, like championship barbecuer, where Mm -hmm. they take the rig out on the weekends and they Mm -hmm. do the barbecue festival. Mm -hmm. And so he made some and Mm -hmm. they flew it up. Mm -hmm. And I had, I won the award for the best barbecue, but I totally cheated. This guy's like a blue ribbon barbecuer. Mm -hmm. And we pulled this stuff out. And uh, so it was, that's my connection to to Al's barbecue as well. Do you think it's very male? Barbecuing. I always wonder whether it's, it gives men an excuse to cook. You I know? think I think grilling in the South was sort of a male activity mm. that they would hang out around the the grill outside and do it. I think that's changed a lot. Mm. Uh, I don't think it's quite that way anymore. Mm. And then, did you have a family quite early on? Did you have children? And I was twenty nine when I had my first child, yeah. son. Where was that? What city? New York. Yeah. And was that also work obsessed? So that you did no, you I'm did you think obsessed. about food then? I'm really still work obsessed. I am. I tell people work is my golf. Mm. Uh, I quite enjoy it. It's like the most interesting puzzle you could possibly play or game, mm. and uh, and love playing it. And the, and I, I often describe to my kids. I I read somewhere. Don't go home and complain about your work to your kids because they'll say, if you hate it that much, why are you doing that instead of being with me? So you should actually be honest and say, I really enjoy my work. And then they say, okay, well, I understand why you do that instead of be with me. And so with that in mind, I used to tell my kid, you know, this is like the greatest video game in the world. In the morning, I can't wait to get up and start playing it. At the end of the day, I don't quite want to put it away. Um, But did you eat? When you work hard, do you still stop? Oh, you... I have a terrible habit that when I start thinking, yeah. and we start like, a, we got, okay, let's get in the room, let's start whiteboarding, I have to eat. I don't know what's like fueling my brain. It's very bad for me because what I want to eat, and it was a, for years they had a joke about how many bags of potato chips could I eat uh, <laughs> in, in an hour. Yeah. And, uh, and if there were cookies, I would eat everyone. I'd say, oh, everybody wants cookies. I would eat all the cookies. I would leave none for anyone else. In a meeting. In a meeting. You and, walk and, into a meeting. And now I try and, you know, modulate mm. that with vegetables and something that's going to be good for me mm. or some nuts. Were you too uh, young for that kind of madman to martini lunch? I was just on the tail end of that. When I came to New York in the media business, People drank every day at lunch, yeah. and they had a bar in their office. Yeah. And if, so if you came to someone's office and say, hey, can I get you a drink? Yeah, let's talk about this. And hey, I'll take a vodka. And, and yeah. people are like soused. Yeah. And there were people you would never ask for a decision after lunch. You'd avoid them. Oh. Or there were people you would always wait until after lunch to ask them for a decision. The people who were like, oh, yeah, that's great. Go ahead and do that. Those were the people you asked after lunch. And the others that got cranky, just stay away from them. Ask them before they uh, go to lunch. So you did go out for working lunches. Oh, you? yes. In yeah, New York. You did. And back at 21 Club, across, I was at the... At Warner Communications for many years, mm-hmm. which was at Rockefeller Center. Before that, was at NBC, which was also Rockefeller Center. And I would go over to 21 Club. We also had at Warner, by the time I rose up to be a high enough executive, we had a corporate dining room. Mm-hmm. And that was a great luxury and something you don't see today. I mean, there would be hoppers on the wall, and the chef would cook you anything you wanted, and it was sort of extravagant meals. And I'd say, you know, I don't have time to go up there. Instead of ordering a sandwich, the chef would come down to my office and go, what would you like me to make for you today? I've got it so-and-so-and-so, I could do this, this, and this. I'll take that. 
Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it gonna, like that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Henry Kravis, you know Henry? Sure. He had um, fantastic food. I was always so impressed with the food that he did in London. For Well, I had uh, one of the chefs in the River Cafe went to work for him, that anybody could have their choice. You could order a steak or you could order a lobster. <laughs> you could, order, And that the idea of actually feeding well the people who worked for you was an obligation and actually good for business because you well, gave I people good in, food. I think in those days... It was the senior executives. It was a it was mm. a very limited perk. Mm. When I went to America Online, when I was president of America Online for a while, we had in our campus in uh, Dulles, Virginia, we had a cafeteria, and mm. everybody got to eat there, and we provided food. That seemed much more egalitarian mm. and much mm. fairer. And maybe the food wasn't quite as nice, mm. but it was there it was affordable. People didn't have to go off campus to go find a place to eat or bring their food in a bag. Richard, my husband, always had a place for people to eat in his office, you know, that there was a place where you could, you know, work on a drawing for a building and then go down and have lunch with a person that you were talking about it with or you would meet. And Michael Bloomberg does that very seriously in his his offices of actually providing free food. He, he and, was almost you know, a pioneer of mm, doing that, the mm. level at which he did it. And, you know, it's interesting because it changes today because you can get delivery like you never could before. Mm. I'm one of those people that if I'm in the office, I don't want to go out because I don't yeah. want to disrupt the work. And somebody just sort of slides a plate in front of me. Mm-hmm. If I'm meeting with someone, they'll ask them, what would you like? And today in New York, we can order from great restaurants. Yeah. Say, whatever you want, we'll order for you. Don't tell that I'll to me. I'm a restaurant. I have a restaurant. I don't want to hear these stories. <laughs> but it was, by the way, I, I, uh, I don't know what the profit margin is. Yeah. But probably not bad because there's no overhead except getting the food to me. Yeah. The ones I think are tough are whoever those people are who are delivering it can't possibly be making any money. They're not. Um, They're not. And what about your family, children? Do do you sit as your parents sat down with you every night for dinner? Did you do that with your children, no. or you were working? No. Well, I, I just found, I don't know whether it's the busy New York life or whether it was our family, but I found everybody sort of wanted to eat when they wanted to eat, mm-hmm. and sort of indulged that. Mm. And um, and if I went out to eat, I was going out at nine o'clock, mm. not at their timetable. Mm. So I would sit with kids when they were eating in the, in the afternoon mm. for their dinner. And I think as they got older, they, they wanted to do this or that, and they wanted mm. to do it with the friends. And so it was not at all what the meal was for me. Yeah. Um, Are they interested in food, your kids? Are they cooks my, or my oldest son's a really good cook and Is very he? interested in food, knows a lot about it, has great knife skills and cooking skills mm. and knows how to do it. My daughter was always a great baker mm-hmm. and enjoyed baking stuff. I was off sugar for about three years 
And for my 60th birthday, my daughter said, Daddy, if I make you a cake, will you eat a piece? And I go, sure. I ate that piece of cake and it triggered me. And I eat ice cream that night. I eat cookies. <laughs> I eat everything. Yeah. And I've and 10 years later, I'm still not able to get off sugar for any more than a month or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my middle son is uh, doesn't like to eat. So it's like for him, eating's a chore. Can we have a moment on on the tequila? Sure. Okay, so tell me how that story started. Well, I, I had a house in San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, wonderful old UNESCO World Heritage Site up in the mountains north of Mexico City, and big expat population. And there was a bootleg tequila in town that every, all the expats loved because it was so smooth. Most tequila has sort of that wince factor of where mm-hmm. you like needed some salt or lime because it's making your face grimace. And this had none of that. It was smooth. It was like a great whiskey. And uh, my son came to visit. He was working in Vegas at the time. He brought his buddy who ran a nightclub in Vegas. And we drank this stuff one night. And this stuff came in a plastic jug. And his friend said the next morning, he goes, you know, Mr. Pittman, I sell Cristal in my club for $1,000 a bottle. So I could get $10,000 a jug for this. And I think, wow, there's a business idea. I'm Mm. just doing investing then, not really working that hard. I go back to New York a month or so later, and I sort of still thinking about it and sort of think, who do I know in the spirits business? And the answer was really no one. Six months later, I'm at a party in Brooklyn, meet this interesting Mexican lady, we're chatting for a while, and somewhere in the conversation, I says, so what do you do for a living? She goes, I run Jose Cuervo in North America. I go, ah, it's fate. Quit your job. Come be my partner. I have a great idea. And she was sort of wanting to be an entrepreneur, but I mean, leaving a good career was tough for her. And uh, about two months later, I finally convinced her she should do it. I'm thinking naively, we'll just take this illegal stuff and make it legal and import mm-hmm. it. She calls me and said, Bob, I have bad news. Said, I put that tequila through a, a test, and guess what? It's not tequila. They mixed our aguardiente mm-hmm. and other stuff with it, so it's not, we're, nothing we can do with it. She, but I have an idea, which she always does, because she's one of those people that's there's never a problem. There's a problem and solution go together. And she, I go to Mexico a couple of weeks later. She has convinced the master tequila maker of Mexico to come out of retirement to do one more tequila. Mm. And he tastes this bootleg stuff, and he goes, there's a process I've always wanted to try on tequila. I'm certain I can make this out of 100% agave, which makes mm. it tequila. And so they, I gave them some money for a lab. About nine months later, they came back with about six variations. And over the two-day period, we drank them all and picked one, and that became Casa de Agones Hoven. Mm. Uh, which is our signature. And you picked the one that you thought was? Sort of the smoothest, had the most flavor. What makes Casa Dragones so special is the way we make it, we preserve the flavor of the agave. Mm. A lot of what you taste in tequila is that sort of harsh taste, and it's sort of the flavor has been burned out of the agave. Mm. And in Casa Dragones, if you just smell it, you'll pick up pear notes, pepper, Mm. citrus, vanilla. And so the secret of it is preserving that flavor. Mm. And it's been great fun. Does it tempt you to do something else like wine? Would you want to buy a vineyard? No, no. If I had known how hard it is, I probably wouldn't have done this. What started as a lark wound up being, you know, a a major project. Yeah. But it's turned out well. Oh, so good. We had it the other night at the River Cafe. I think tequila, having lived in Mexico for four months, I really got used to having tequila with food. And not just Mexican food. I think it, you know, it's it's just a drink that you can drink through. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. So you have houses... All over, whether it's Jamaica or Mexico or 
world. New York or Miami York or, or Miami, LA yeah. or Malibu. And blah, what blah. is, when you go to those different places, are you affected by the food as well? Do you, in Jamaica, do you crave something that will be, yes. remind you of Jamaica? I think when you go to a place, the food's a very important part of it. Mm. When I go to Jamaica, I crave jerk. Mm-hmm. Can't get enough at Aki Saltfish for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are unique foods there. And when I go to L.A., there's yeah, a what do you eat in L.A.? It's, it's interesting. There is, I live very near in Venice, Erewhon, mm-hmm. which is, you know, probably mm-hmm. what yeah. the most expensive grocery store in the yeah. world is crazy. But it's fun. And so we sort of play with the food there. Go to Malibu. It's mostly seafood that we mm-hmm. have there. And, you know, fresh farm vegetables. Miami has got everything now. Yeah. Um, an interesting sort of food capital. New York, of course, is New York. Yeah. What do you want? Yeah. Uh, and it's there. And uh, I'm building a house in Portugal. Yes, and sort of said. discovering the Portuguese cuisine. Yeah. Do you have chefs in each No, house? no, no. I don't you have just, chefs. You just go and Yeah, I mean, occasionally we'll hire somebody to come in and cook. But yeah. part of the fun is cooking ourselves yeah. or going out yeah. to a restaurant. And if food is a sense of discovery, it's also comfort. My last question to you on this boat, on our time together, uh, is if you were saying that you needed food not to alleviate hunger or to remind you of a memory, but you needed comfort, is there a food that you would turn to? Ice cream. Ice cream. Um, ice cream, cookies, yeah. chocolate. Okay. And and if I, they're they're poison to me, I just have to keep them away. If I have them in the refrigerator, I'll say I'm not going to have any, and then I'll go to the refrigerator, literally look at the freezer and walk away. Yeah. And then I'll get closer to it. And then I'll open it up and look at it. I'm I'm trying to resist it. Open it up. Then I'll yeah. go. I'll have one spoonful. <laughs> and then suddenly I've eaten the entire container of ice cream, and uh, I'm absolutely like you know, an addict kind of behavior with those comfort foods. And then mm. other foods are like, take it or leave it. Yeah. But those are the ones that really get me. That and by the way, and I guess when you say, you know, it's the comfort food, it's the ones that make me hate myself for eating them because it's so good and so delicious and feels so good and so addictive. It looks to me like you look pretty well. You talk beautifully. You're my new friend and I would go for it. Oh, I love it. Thank you. You've given me great permission. I appreciate <laughs> I have. it. Thank go you. And thank you for a great dinner. We had a Many great time. More. Thank Many you. more. The River Cafe Lookbook is now available in bookshops and online. It has over 100 recipes beautifully illustrated with photographs from the renowned photographer Matthew Donaldson. The book has 50 delicious and easy-to-prepare recipes, including a host of River Cafe classics that have been specially adapted for new cooks. The River Cafe Lookbook, recipes for cooks of all ages. Ruthie's Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomai Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 